Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Bianca. And I'm Gianna. Gianna, are you a New Year's resolution kind of gal? No, I'd say I'm more of a sad girl Christmas station kind of gal. However, I am excited to embark on the new year of APT. I know, it's wild going into 2022 to ring in the new year. We are serving up some holiday content today, discussing Christmas, its history, and what's the deal with Santa. All I would want for this episode of APT is for Jim Gaffigan, the Hot Pocket Tartlet, to talk about the absurdity of holidays with us. But alas, let's Art Pop Talk. Hello, hello. Bianca, I just have to say, I think given Jim Gaffigan's stand-up and his like cute little storytellings that he does on CBS Sunday Morning, I think he would really like the APT vibe. No, I think so too. I think we're definitely on the same page and you're totally right. He would be the perfect guest to have if we were talking about odd holiday traditions. So true. The Easter one, chef's kiss. Oh yeah, Easter. Yeah. Also the one about Valentine's Day, like, ah, I got the chocolate filled with toothpaste. (laughs) (laughs) Do you like, do you like those little Valentine's candies? Yeah. Have we talked about this before? I don't know. I am, you know, if you just get like a bad, like cheap one, it's just so not worth it. So you either have to like do it or like don't do it at all. But I don't like chocolates filled with, I don't know, like weird other kind of like creamy fillings, which is I feel Uh like what he refers to as the toothpaste filling. I'm not a mint like chocolate kind of gal, but I do like coconut and caramel. Yeah. Speaking of of little boxes of chocolate. I went to LA Burdick uh, here in Boston yesterday. And I mean, it's one of those things where they like flaunt that they have one of they're rated one of the best hot chocolates in the world. And it was pretty delicious. They call it it's so cute. They call it drinking chocolate on their menu. Congratulations. You did it. World's best cup of coffee. <laughs> Is that what you this did was, when you went in there? You know, I that's not what I did. But the hot chocolate was, I mean, it was very delicious. It's It was kind of like, I don't want to say French style hot chocolate, if you've ever had that. It was still like a little thinner mm. than that. But um, but it, it, was, it was very tasty. But it was just, I think it was just one of those things where, you know, it's hot chocolate season. So people are talking about LA Burdick's hot chocolate. And it, I, I like, I'm not trying to say it wasn't good. It was so delicious but it's one of those things that the hype was like so intense and literally as we were standing in line this woman is like talking about how this is the most amazing hot chocolate in the entire world it was very good and it was very cute it was just like oh yeah this is this is good chocolate I don't know. also speaking of chocolate there is this guy that comes up on my instagram a lot and he makes these like a really cool chocolate sculptures uh but now he has his own netflix special yes Yes, i follow him yeah and so i haven't watched it yet i've kind of been waiting i thought maybe when you come home that could be something we watched i watched two episodes okay is it good 
Yeah, it's it's so it's sweet cute. because it's not like an American style show, you know, where like it's chopped or whatever and people are getting kicked off <laughs> right or whatever. It, he's so nice and he's like, I just want you to do better. And like, it's so cute. He's just like so nice. And then the people who are struggling, he gets like one-on-one time with them. And Aww. then he'll like his their little, you know, sous chef or something like that. Like whenever they're like working together because he just wants them to succeed. <laughs> so nice. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet. I've been waiting for the right mood to watch it. Yeah, I've been, it's one of those things I've kind of had on the background. Well, is there any, any other updates you have before we get into some art news? No, no updates that I can share right now. I may have some updates when we come back from the holiday season. And stay tuned for the end of the episode because Bianca and I will talk to you a little bit more about drunk art history. Yes. So, you know, today's art news, Gianna, I'm not trying to say that APT <laughs> of course it, like, not. Of is course the cause not. of this art news, but like, whatever, Tartlet is like working at the Met, if he could just like credit APT, <laughs> that would be great. We're just here to steal your thunder. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure, for sure. So Gianna's going to give some art news about the big Sackler Met news that dropped this past week, and then after that... I'm kind of going to give a recap of my museum weekend because it definitely piggybacks off of art news and definitely our conversation um, last week and last episode as well. So Gianna, you want to take it away? So some big art news dropped after last week's episode on the Sacklers and Hulu's Dope Sick episode. The Metropolitan Museum of Art has taken the Sackler name off of its wings. So I found a BBC article that lays out a brief history of the museums and the family's relationship, but why I wanted to share it is because we don't only get to hear the museum statement, but we get the Sacklers' responses to these events as well. In a joint statement released on Thursday, last Thursday, the Met and members of the Sackler family said that the action was, quote, mutually agreed in order to allow the Met to further its core mission. Quote, our families have always strongly supported the Met, and we believe this is to be the best interest in the museum and the important mission that it serves. And this is from the descendants of Dr. Mortimer Sackler and Dr. Raymond Sackler. The earliest of these gifts were made almost 50 years ago, and now we are passing the torch to others who might wish to step forward to support the museum. The Mets president and CEO, Dan Wise, said in a statement that the Sacklers, quote, have been among our most generous supporters. This gracious gesture gesture of the Sacklers aids the museum in continuing to serve this and future generations. In 2019, and this is something that I did not know, the Met announced that it would no longer accept gifts from the family amid increased public scrutiny, and a total of seven exhibition spaces at the Met bears Sackler name. So let's just talk about <laughs> these statements. Uh, for me, it's it's the 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 graciousness of it all um, that they are doing this of their own accord or of their own free will, I suppose, that this is something they're doing in order to pass the torch down to other rich, wealthy donors, give them an opportunity they've never had before. Um, So clearly, we're 
were dancing around the issue uh, per usual. I understand that they have been generous, if we want to use that word, generous donors. I understand they have contributed a lot of money to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But um, I think the joint statement that they've put together is is quite interesting. I suppose, especially here on APT, we um, are really over museum statements. And I think the only reason, again, why I wanted to share this one for today was because it's this joint statement with them and the Sacklers. And um, it just solidifies or proves kind of like the mutual beneficiary relationship that the two institutions have. I don't know. It's like, it's kind of like a hard pill to swallow almost that the museum willingly or unwillingly, I, we, I don't know, is put in this position to even have to come out with a joint statement with this powerful family. Yeah, no pun intended there with the hard pill to swallow. Oh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, this is just this gracious gesture by the Sacklers. It's It's like giving the Sacklers just another, just another tiny little bit of of kindness that I don't think that they necessarily deserve because it's saying the Sacklers are letting other people help arts and no, the culture and that's still a good nothing. thing for them to do. And it just, it just doesn't make sense. You, why address why you're taking down the Sackler name? I mean, they don't do any of that in the statement and it's just like, you're, you're doing it. I mean, hopefully for a good reason because your constituents are not happy with the situation and you're not addressing that at all. Like mm-hmm. you're not addressing the mass population of people that actually benefit from the artworks and programs that are offered at the Met. You are still going back to this idea in support of big name donors. And the funny thing to me is like, I don't know what like sick kind of twisted relationship these two institutions have because if the Met stopped taking donations or gifts from the Sackler family in 2019 in recent years, then what do they have to lose by addressing the situation? Because you have already decided that you're not taking anything from them anymore. So what do you have to lose to address what needs to be addressed? Right. And I also kind of feel like it's still there with this statement, there's still a lingering connection of kind of like hope for other connections that the Sacklers might provide. So they're not severing ties completely with the Sackler family. And I think that is very intentional because there are other ties and connections that the Sacklers still might bring to the Met. Uh, And it's, it's coming from wealthy people who are probably doing something of the exact same caliber. You know what I mean? It's just, and I think what pisses me off most about this, and this is a statement off of Payne's Insta, um, sharing the breaking news, they said, nearly four years after our first action at the Met on March 10th, 2018, the Sackler name is coming off of the Met. And there's just like this statement just like enrages me because like, I want Payne to like have their moment, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I, as much as they do, and obviously all of their amazing actions and efforts have built up to this like the Sacklers have just been like notorious for oh I I I wouldn't have seen anything we could have done differently Mm -hmm. um and they've really never taken responsibility for for what they've done and this is just a continuation of that right exactly well 
I, I like to think that we're little fire starters here at APT. I mean, how that's so wild. It was literally a few days after the episode came out that all of a sudden this news broke. I was like, are you kidding <laughs> Don't me? get a swell head, Bianca. <laughs> I mean, just saying. It was good timing. And I think, and Bianca and I really appreciate all of the responses that we've gotten from last week's yeah. episode. And, and Bianca will take us through a little bit of uh, more signage conversations today as you guys also really resonated with that as well. So um, I think if anything, the art Pop-Tarts have gotten something really good out of the past couple weeks. I hope so. I hope so. So yeah, I'll transition into a little recap of my weekend just because I I do want to just continue along some of the conversations that Gianna and I were having on last week's episode. And also, Gianna, you know what? As I was museum hopping this weekend, I know that Omicron is slowly threatening. Everything Why did they to, have what to just pick took Omicron? Place? I mean, I'm almost happy about it because it sounds like the most like menacing of, of symbols or of diseases. <laughs> um, but I felt like this weekend, whenever I was going around, it was exactly what we kind of always wanted to do with APT is to be able to go around to all these different museums and exhibitions and then bring that into the podcast conversations. And I feel like just with COVID, it, it has been really hard to be able to do a lot of in-person kind of museum activities. And I got a, I got a really good chunk in this weekend that I just want to talk about. So I'll start off with this past Sunday. I did in fact visit the Harvard Art Museums, which we talked about last week, given that one of the three art museums at Harvard's campus is literally called the Arthur M. Sackler Museum. So I did go visit and I felt like I was an undercover spy. Like I did feel really kind of cool. It was an incredible museum. And like while I was in that there, sucks. I, just, I really wish it, it was really, shitty. It really was wild how amazing an academic institution this was. And Gianna literally I was I the whole weekend I was with APT special guest. Foster W. Krupp, who, if you haven't listened to yet, joined us on the podcast because of his uh, museum studies work, as particularly in natural history and taxidermy. Yeah, and by the so, way, I did not appreciate the taxidermy snaps you were sending me. Like, oh, I know. I'll get into that to not so, appreciate that. <laughs> Foster and I, coming from art history and museum studies, like academic backgrounds, we were in the Harvard Art Museum just being like... This facility is literally so nice. And just, I couldn't help but think about, like, the Bartlett Center for the Arts. It's just like... <laughs> Everyone oh needs to know what that is. So the Bartlett Center is OSU's art building, which is where Gianna and I primarily did all of our... Everything. You know, art and academic studies. So whenever you're in the Harvard Art Museum, the upper levels kind of show some of the academic and learning and research spaces that they have. And they have, um, what is it called? I forget what the actual name of it, of the center is, but they basically have a really impressive pigment collection. And so 
on display on the upper level, you could see all of the different types of pigment research that they do. And the labs were just beautiful and so pretty and nice. And we were up there just being like, okay, great. Like, this is what a Harvard education, I guess, is really worth. (laughs) Must be nice. So then we're walking through the museum and Gianna, one whole level basically is their academic teaching gallery and it's not even a gallery it's like a whole level of the museum and it's that there's like labels up that say this is for teaching purposes and this is where faculty and students and things like that can have things pulled from their permanent collection to be on view for class purposes and (laughs) Like the works that are on view for class purposes. I was like, okay, like, wow, that's, I'm so happy for you, all of you students here studying all of this amazing stuff for for your class. That's, that's great. Like um, on that big vein in your forehead, it's like off the charts oh right God. now. It's just, it was, it was too nice. It was too nice. The rest of the museum is is incredible. It is really interesting because as we talked about, there are three art museums at Harvard, but they're all in one building. So as you're walking through the levels, you kind of weave in and out from museum to museum. And each museum does have a different type of collection. So that was, it, it was just interesting to see all of them kind of in one place. But as Foster and I were talking about, it's interesting how tied that must be and that is to donors and having to have Arthur M. Sackler Museum, the, you know, the Fog Museum. So that was just really interesting and in thinking about donations and how donations work at museums and how they have to kind of permanently exist. So the Arthur M. Sackler Museum, like we talked about last week, is primarily Asian art that's on display. And it was, I mean, it was, it was beautiful. Like, there's no way of kind of arguing against that. But you just, I mean, I did feel icky kind of going in there thinking about where the works were from, who they were from, how they were donated. Um, And on the labels, obviously not everything, not every single work of art on display was donated by Arthur M. Sackler because they have the, you know, provenance on the labels saying that this is a gift of whoever and whatever, so-and-so. So not everything is entirely donated from Arthur Sackler, but something that I did want to talk about as a positive from the Harvard Art Museum, something that I really enjoyed was All of their labels on the wall next to every piece of art, they're pretty thorough. I mean, obviously they have an amazing team of people and grad students and probably undergrads doing constant research. So all of their labels are are pretty great. But what they did have, and you can look at images on our Instagram for reference, are these little orange frames that would be placed outside of some of the labels or be placed around some of the labels on the wall. So as you're walking throughout the museums, these labels really pop because they have this like bright neon orange frame around them. And in little letters on the orange frame, you see the word reframe. 
And so the labels that have this orange frame are kind of recontextualizing the artworks and bringing just new perspectives onto the work that the label is associated with or the didactic. Like I have one here that's talking about female artists or simply artists. And what do we call women artists whenever they're working? Do we call them women artists or are we just at the point where we can use the word artist and not have to kind of delineate a gender associated with it? So that was just something really cool that I I appreciated throughout the museum. Um, I think it is a really big step to kind of reframe the collection and see those new insights that many communities are asking for when it comes to artworks. I will say that I felt like they were pretty tame and it does seem like it kind of comes back on the viewer to make that decision. Like, for the example, I'll use the female artist or simply artist label. It doesn't necessarily give you the most definitive answer, I suppose. So it, it's like some of them are a little bit ambiguous, but I do appreciate it. And so I think from my perspective, I would like to see some labels that are a little bit more intensive, but it's it's still a nice step that I appreciated. And I'll get more into labels here in a second, but I also just wanted to briefly mention that we did go to the Harvard Natural History Museum as well. And Gianna, I truly don't think that you would have been able to handle it because as I was walking through the taxidermy section, I was like definitely getting the heebie-jeebies. Like me, I had goosebumps. Like I felt so weird walking through it. I mean, it was really interesting and going through a foster was actually very cool because he was kind of talking about what we talked about on the podcast, like how he can tell some of the figures are taxidermied or not. Some of them are obviously replicas or things like that. Um, how they replicate the skin and how the kind of art making practice comes into making the molds for the bodies. And so that was really fun. And he talked about the Um, cases that they were in and how the Natural History Museum, some of their displays are still really dated and how that kind of evokes this origin aesthetic of the Natural History Museum. And not like not in a problematic way, like some of their paleontology displays were just super retro looking, but they looked kind of cool. And there's nothing, there was nothing necessarily wrong with how they were displaying the you know, bones of these prehistoric dinosaurs or mammals or things like that, but just the text or the bright kind of pastel colors against the wall was was really interesting. So that was really fun to go through the Natural History Museum with Foster. Um, there are taxidermists, I forgot what the word is, people who do taxidermy um, popping up on like my TikTok and my Instagram now. <laughs> it's really interesting because this girl was kind of like, uh, doing her commentary off this like video of this girl who was stuffing a deer and she was saying like not me thinking that they just like stuff them of the the same thing they do like a build-a-bear <laughs> and she's actually like carving and creating like the muscular features on right. her armature um, which is really interesting and it reminded me so much of my art professor who like makes armatures and does mold because she creates like animal figures. Right. Um, So if she wanted to put fur over them, like even if it's like faux fur, like she's got taxidermy skills. Right. And that's something that Foster was pointing out about the Harvard Natural History Museum, because he was pointing out 
some of the molds kind of predate the artistry that comes into play when Mm. doing taxidermy. And he was talking about how they're kind of like lacking muscle features or they're they're lacking kind of certain skeletal features. And it's mostly just kind of like a, a random animal shape that is underneath the skin and and, and also then you get this kind of like uh, what's the word i'm like like a, a very plain and toned down version of of taxidermy yeah it's like when we look at i don't know really old like even like prehistoric drawings of like is this a cow <laughs> like we're trying to capture what this animal is even with drawing right. yeah right Ugh, taxidermy no escaping <laughs> All right, so the last thing that I'm going to recap for you all before we get into a little Santa lure is about the Isabella Stewart Gardner exhibition, Titian, Women, Myth, and Power. And this is something that's kind of been buzzing around people that I've been talking to in Boston, and I'm really glad that I went to go see the show. It's a show that definitely didn't disappoint after kind of hearing all this like buzz and hype about it. So I'm going to read the kind of initial didactic overview to give you a little background on the show from the Stuart Gardner Museum. Between 1551 and 1562, Titian created a series of monumental paintings for King Philip II of Spain. Celebrated as landmarks of Western painting, the six posee or painted poetries envision epic stories from classical antiquity. Titian reimagined these familiar tales and used his modern style of painting to shape the future of Western art. For the first time in over four centuries, the Isabella Stewart Gardner's fully restored Rape of Europa is reunited with its five illustrious companions in the exhibition's finale and its only American venue on an international tour, including to the National Gallery in London and the Museo del Prado in Madrid. This exhibition explores each painting's story, its drama, raw emotion, and complex consequences illustrated in each painting, reconsidering what the Posse meant in their own time and how they resonate now. Newly commissioned responses by contemporary artists and scholars engage with questions of gender, power, sexual violence as relevant today as they were in the Renaissance. Two new works developed in response to Titian's painting are on view in both the Fenway Gallery and on the museum's facade. Inside the kind of castle portion of the Stuart Gardner Museum, artists-in-residence Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly give voice to the central figure of Gardner's Titian painting, Europa. Then on the facade, Barbara Kruger's body language uses a detail from Titian's Diana and Acteon to challenge dynamics of gender and power. So the show was really impressive just bringing, obviously, all of these works together for the first time in 400 years. And the Rape of Europa is part of the Stuart Gardner's permanent collection. So it's pretty amazing that they're working with other museums to get these pieces around the globe. And then on top of that, having these kind of not only contemporary conversations exist within the labels themselves and the kind of didactics and curatorial response to the show, then having contemporary artists Mary Kelly, Patrick Kelly, and Barbara Kruger also add that artistic recontextualizing as well throughout the museum was also really interesting. 
I want to go ahead and read a didactic on violence and power. Throughout the exhibition, there are kind of these little, you know, didactic and curatorial stations that give you time to rethink these kind of common themes found throughout the show and throughout art history. So we have violence and power that I'll read. Then we have a didactic on the post-sea, and we also have one on the gaze. So I'll read this one because I thought it was kind of the most compelling in relation to what we had talked about last week. Quote, Renaissance artists never shied away from violent subjects, and Titian was no exception. His images of violence against women resonated differently in the 16th century than they do today. To consider these paintings is not to condone their violence, but to try to understand what they mean to us now and how we ourselves confront the persistent issue of sexual assault. Titian dramatizes several stories of rape and coercion. The artist does not dwell on the physical assaults, but, like Ovid in Metamorphoses, instead emphasizes their consequences, however disturbing that might seem today. Europa, abducted and raped by Jupiter, king of the gods, bore children on the island of Crete, who founded a civilization in her name. Jupiter seduced Danae and Callisto, both of whom were punished the former imprisoned by her family and the latter exposed by her peers. This approach underscores two aspects of sexual violence as it was understood in Titian's time, the use of rape as a tool of warfare and conquest and the legal standing of women in the Renaissance's society. In this period, women's rights barely existed. Victims were rarely the primary focus of the legal system and justice was framed in terms of family honor. Rape was a crime of lust, carrying penalties for the loss of the woman's family or honor or theft of property, since a married woman legally belonged to her husband. Often, judicial rulings required the victim to enter into a forced marriage with her assailant. It seems peculiar to us now that Titian painted these images for King Philip II to decorate his home, but rape was a subject of both eroticism and power that resonated with the ascendant monarch. For contemporary audiences, the images raise disturbing questions. How do we reconcile the beauty of a painting with the horror of its subject? Have representations like these normalized scenes of violence throughout the history of Western art? Yes. <laughs> Europa functions as a mute symbol, but what about her humanity? What is the relation between sexual violence or abduction and power? Between violence and grief... We hope this exhibition and the responses to it by Barbara Kruger and Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly will be catalysts for ongoing dialogue. So that didactic in itself just, I thought was, was done really well. And then throughout the exhibition on each label associated with the artworks, there are obviously kind of curatorial labels talking about what's happening in the work of art. But then below that, there's another label that says reconsidering Titian today. And they have quotes from just different people looking at the works. So for example, on Perseus and Andromeda, reconsidering Titian today, the quote says, if I may, I'd like to ask about what got us here, about how I, a daughter of Ethiopia, comes to be rescued by a semblance of a man of Greece. And so there are just really interesting little other nuggets and conversations about what this artwork is doing for us today. And not all of them were really all that powerful. Some of them were just kind of people giving their thoughts on the work itself. And 
not necessarily that that's a bad thing, but I think that again, going back to what I was talking about with the Harvard Art Museums, my biggest critique of the exhibition overall would be that the kind of recontextualizing isn't that strong from the museum itself. Because if I were offering kind of my thoughts on something like sexual violence or what's happening in the artwork, my verbiage would be a little bit stronger. But I thought that those kind of like corresponding quotes from people were just a little bit tame. And I think that that was probably done intentionally. But overall, Again, I really appreciated where the show is taking us in terms of kind of museum studies and how artworks are being recontextualized in a positive light. But however, this exhibition did not offer a trigger warning, which I appreciated given the fact that there are no other trigger warnings in the museum itself. And again, Rape of Europa is a part of the museum's permanent collection. So normally it is on view in kind of one of the great rooms in the Stuart Gardner Castle area. It it was a very serious subject right off the bat. They're talking about sexual assault and violence against women in this opening didactic. So I, I thought it was just an interesting thing that we had just been talking about Rape of Europa as kind of an example of Western art history that is violent against women, but is seen as kind of a classic painting to be praised in terms of its artistry. And then here I was looking at one of those exact interpretations and didn't necessarily see a a trigger warning, but the show opens, I thought, in a very in a very nice way, kind of letting you know what exactly is going to happen whenever you walk into the room. You know what I love about that, or that I think is interesting, is that you're saying there's no trigger warnings, but because we do have this amazing didactic and we do have that information, like that's very strategic, why would you need a trigger warning when you have been given all that information instead of blatantly giving you a sign without no context? So there's like a really kind of key, crucial, um, intentional thing happening and things that we were calling for in the last episode. Um, I'm kind of curious, and I'm sorry if you said this, but the recontextualization of these artworks by these three people, was this something that they did specifically like for this museum or was it, was it something that they just did and that the museum is showing? Were the artists specifically brought in through this museum to recontextualize these artworks? You know, it's my understanding that they were. The Barbara Kruger work is on the facade of the Stuart Gardner Museum. And it's kind of interesting because normally you might come across a a kind of banner like this that is giving you more context about the exhibitions that are on view. Like I think most art museums kind of have these massive banners outside letting you know what, you know, shows are on view. But this kind of took the place of that on the outside of the building And to me, it seemed like they were using the Barbara Kruger as its own little exhibition on the outside of the building, even though it was just one piece. So I am not entirely sure if the Kruger and Mary Kelly work works are are traveling with the rest of the show. They made it seem like it was intentional to Isabella Stewart Gardner, but that's just what I saw i suppose if that is the case i also think that is extremely important yeah artists recontextualizing and reimagining artworks we know is not a new thing we see that time and time again but for a museum to give its platform and 
lend its voice to a specific artist. Um, I can't say that we've talked about that before. I'm not saying that that's never happened, but I mm-hmm. can say that I've never experienced like a formal setting where I've been able to see that. So I, I think that is um, really important if if that is the case. Um talking about that mutual relationship between the institution and in the artist because also it's it's weird because the museum is, is lending its platform to the artist but the artist is lending its voice to the institution therefore kind of speaking for it however i don't know if that is also like a clever not that the not that this this bellstort gallery isn't backing this exhibition but so often and especially on the podcast we've talked about like this call for museums to recontextualize exhibitions that uh weren't well researched or well exhibited in the first place so um i'm I'm curious how long this project was in the making or if having an artist come in to to have like a third party kind of perspective or third party entity come in um, is also beneficial for the institution. I don't know. That's interesting to talk about. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it, I think it was very intentional, but in a positive way. And like I said, the rape of Europa, the, the main piece of the exhibition is in that permanent collection of the Stuart Gardner museum. Mm-hmm. And again, that is, or both of the contemporary artists use the exhibition and Mary Kelly's piece is distinctly focusing on the character of Europa. So her her piece was kind of a nine minute video performance that was I thought fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, I'm very glad that you had um, a great little museum excursion to a couple different places with some museum besties. We love to see that. No, it was great. So I just wanted to offer that recap since I thought it was very poignant and. Uh, make sure that I talk to you guys about it before we go on our break. So Gianna, should we take a little break in the middle of this episode? And when we come back, we will be talking about Santa. We are here with our last little segment of 2021, and Gianna is going to lead us through a little historical evaluation of the history of Santa Claus. So Gianna, can you take it away for us? Yes, absolutely. I would love to. Please don't mind the big shift in tone here from Santa to Sackler. Um, However, we did want to bring a little bit of joy uh, before you, you know, don't have us for two weeks, which I know you're just going to be so sad about. I say sarcastically, but I really hope you do. (laughs) So, most of our modern Santa or Santa forms that we see, what have you, is shaped by some familiar influential figures and artists such as Clement Moore, who wrote A Visit from St. Nicholas, otherwise known as The Night Before Christmas, in 1822. The artist Thomas Nast, who in 1881 drew the iconic imagining of Santa Claus as jolly, dressed in red with a full beard, really as we know him today. Because it seems 
these days, it's literally impossible for us to go through one episode without talking about commercialization. We will get into a little bit of the Norman Rockwell and Coca-Cola of it all when in the 1930s and 40s, this advertising was key and popularizing this specific version of Santa Claus. But let's start a little further back because Clement Moore didn't invent Santa Claus by any means. The name Santa Claus comes from the informal Dutch name St. Nicholas, which is Sinterklaas. St. Nicholas was a historic 4th century Greek saint from an area known in modern terms as Turkey, who had a reputation for secret gift giving or putting coins in the left shoe of particularly like children. Giving gifts to children was like his whole thing. Being the patron saint of children, St. Nicholas has long been associated with, again, gift giving to kids. We are looking at two images right now, both Bianca and I, of Russian historic examples of St. Nicholas, one in the 1300s, and it shows St. Nicholas as very divine looking. The perspective is very flattened and he's enveloped in gold. The other is a little bit further up in the 1800s that is still very flattened in perspective, flattened in nature. We do have a golden halo around him, but there is a larger narrative in this piece that almost reminds me of like a quilt, how we would see narratives um, ha happen in certain kind of um, square sections on a big quilt. In this like frame around the figure are different scenes of St. Nicholas giving gifts as he is the patron saint of, again, children. I think also in terms of religious iconography, the image of St. Nicholas from the 13th century clearly encapsulates that. We also have him holding like a manuscript. We have crosses. We have the halo. And we do in the other one as well. Um, and in terms of the 18th century piece with the narratives, it reminds me of like the lamentation of Christ. So we still have this like direct contextualization of a saint, right, being involved with religion. So we haven't like moved to the center class of it all. In the 1700s, kind of smack in the middle between those two pieces we just talked about, we get the phenomenon of Father Christmas. Although the earliest English example of the personification of Christmas are thought to be from the 15th century carol, which refers to, quote, Sire Christmas. He typically represents the spirit of good cheer at Christmas, but was not associated with either children or bringing of gifts like Sinterklaas was. However, we do have documentation of Father Christmas in Josiah King's 1686, The Examination and Trial of Father Christmas. This was published shortly after Christmas was reinstated as a holy day in England after being banned post-Civil War England. In this image as well, we also do get some text that kind of describes this narrative. We have the image of Father Christmas sitting in this chair, and we have um, not a flattened perspective anymore. We have more depth. One of the reasons why I like this image too is because we do have some text paired with the visuals. We have Father Christmas sitting in his chair. The perspective is not flattened anymore. There's actually depth, and there is... Um, a larger kind of narrative happening again with text. And this is a kind of a good transition into more published works that we'll be looking at too. Also, this piece is interesting just in terms of kind of 
more modern lore of Santa Claus as well, because um, the examination and trial of Father Christmas reminds me of Miracle on 34th Street. And it also reminds me of the Santa Claus movie where uh, they bring in Tim Allen and he's like, you know, being brought in by the police and that sort of thing. So it's kind of interesting just how this, um, how these tales have been retold over time and how that came into popular culture as well. He also has in this etching more of the the traditional Santa Claus look. We kind of have this, it's in black and white, but we have this, what seems to be fur lining his garments and fur lining his hat that he's wearing as well. When you do think about like the white fur or like the lining on Santa Claus's, as we know of Santa Claus and Mm -hmm. his attire, it's really not far-fetched from regal attire, which we've talked about. Right, Um, or people attire attire mm -hmm. as well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially when you think of like a crown, like when we we talked about uh, like Mm -hmm. British royal iconography um, and we talked about the crown, like it has this uh, specific... um, white for lining but Mm -hmm. the animal that they use which i cannot remember right now has black dots on it Mm -hmm. and you can see in this etching that the white trim on his hat has little dots on it you can yeah yeah totally this brings us to clement moore who wrote again the uh visit from saint nicholas otherwise known as the night before christmas in the early 1800s and we get this like vivid literary description of santa which i will read for you because what's a christmas episode without a little storytelling so it's just a little chunk um from twas the night before christmas down the chimney saint nicholas came with a bound he was dressed in all fur from his head to his foot and his clothes were all tarnished with ash and soot a bundle of toys he had flung on his back and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack his eyes how they twinkled his dimples how merry his cheeks were like roses his nose like a cherry his droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow and his beard on his chin was as white as the snow so cute this also was a good moment for pairing Sinterklaas and our version of Santa because Sinterklaas also was imagined to carry a staff. He also rode on the rooftops and he rode on a huge white horse and he had very like mischievous little helpers who listened at chimneys to find out whether children were also being good or bad. Um, In terms of his description, like Santa's physical descriptions, there's also some interesting research about um, the parallels of Norse mythology with the god Odin, who rode on an eight-legged horse and who was old and had a white beard. (laughs) Moving forward, we get to Thomas Nast, who was a German-born American caricaturist and first drew Santa Claus for the 1862 Christmas season Harper's Weekly cover and centerfold illustration to memorialize the family sacrifices of the Union during the early and for the North darkest days of the Civil War. Nass's Santa appeared as a kindly figure representing Christmas, the holiday celebrating the birth of Christ. But I want to talk about an image that Nass drew just of Santa shortly after his edition for Harper's Weekly cover. So this image was done in 1881. It's his most famous rendition of Santa, and it's called Merry Old Santa Claus. When Nass created this image of Santa Claus, he was drawing on his 
native German tradition of St. Nicholas. In the German Christian tradition, December 6th was and still is St. Nicholas Day, a festival day of honoring St. Nicholas and a day of also gift giving. Nass combined the tradition of St. Nicholas with other German folk traditions of elves to draw his Santa in 1862. I think with Nass' background and being characterized as a caricaturist, um, I think is important here because after this, I'm going to be talking about um, Norman Rockwell, other artists that bring Santa into realism. Um, but this artist is definitely still an illustrator. Most of the artists in terms of Santa, I would identify as an illustrator because even with like the propaganda of depicting Santa and the Christmas season associating with war, like all of that is getting us closer and closer to the popularization of Santa, the commercialization, and also the propaganda. We do start to get some very distinctive Santa Claus features here. Um, he's smoking a pipe. He has like mistletoe on his hat. Um, but it's definitely kind of like an old school, like cross-hatched etching, right? And um, a funny thing about this image too is um, this image of Santa Claus actually became colorized and reimagined later on in the 1880s and with Santa in a red suit. So then shortly after, once we get more color versions, we do have this characterization of Santa in red. Interestingly enough, though, between these two time periods of Clement Moore and Nass version, when Clement Moore's book was reproduced and published, different variations and illustrations came out with that. And sometimes Santa would be published wearing yellow or even green. So it wasn't until the colorization of Nass Santa that we got Santa in red. In the beginning of the 1900s, that's when we get more Christmas books, more narratives, more holiday commercial commercialism in the form of festive illustrations. I should also say, particularly around this time too, we start seeing uh, Santa kind of depicted more cross-culturally too. Santa is still drawn and takes shape as more of a cartoon character still. it's He's not quite entered realism yet. But when the illustrator Norman Rockwell comes about and depicts Santa many times over in the 1920s, he's not only helping to solidify the familiar aesthetics of Santa, but we get Santa as less of like a cartoon and starting to accept him as like a real influential figure. So Bianca, I don't know if you have seen these images of Santa by Norman Rockwell before. Um, they're very characteristic of his work. If you see them, you would probably say, oh yes, that's Norman Rockwell. Um, they're in this lovely circle framed. We have two that we're looking at. One is from 1920 and one is from two years after. The first one, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Thomas Nast because we have that little like mistletoe. We have these manuscripts, kind of this like call to nostalgia or like German tradition in terms of text and aesthetic too, because we have like Christmas laid out in this like, um, like super decorative font. And then the one in 1922, he's not like reading. He doesn't have this manuscript, right? He's portrayed as a toy maker and he has these little elves around him. 
So from the Norman Rockwell Museum, they have a page in their archive attributed to Santa illustrations, which is super cute. Not just from Rockwell himself, but they also have an illustrator, Haddon Sunblom, who in the 1930s, about 10 years after Rockwell's first rendition, iconically painted Santa for Coca-Cola's winter advertisement. Sunblom took his inspiration from Clement Moore's poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas, and decided to make Santa as cheerful as possible, wearing a festive red and white suit, smiling happily uh, with rosy cheeks. And as luck would have it, Sunblum had a neighbor who retired, um, who was a retired salesman, and he actually was the model for this piece. So the model for the Coca-Cola Santa was this real guy, and he happened to be the illustrator's neighbor. Sunblum continued his Coca-Cola Santa ads for the next 35 years, which further popularized this version of Santa as the image that we most associate with Christmas today. Um, so I think this image is really funny. We've got Santa like really relaxed in like a big old kind of retro chair. Um, and he's holding our classic glass Coca-Cola bottle. And then he has this like cute little deer. Um, we do have the Coca-Cola logo, but this piece is called and the title is on there as it is an advertisement, quote, the pause that refreshes. And I think the biggest thing that's kind of characterized here is we have the belt and we have these like writer's boots too. And in this image, he's actually not wearing his Santa Claus hat, but he has this like perfect kind of like handlebar mustache too which I think gives them like the, I don't know, it modernizes Santa. This one in particular, let's see, this one is from 1956. So yeah, this chair that Santa's in is from something out of Mad Men, you know. Mm. It's so cute. I I love this ad so much. And there's a little reindeer with Santa. I just, something about Coca-Cola Christmas advertisements, like I just, they, they know exactly what they're doing over at Coca-Cola. And Frankly, I'm not mad about it. Their ads are always so cute. And I was telling Juliana that the Christmas Coca-Cola commercial that came out like 10 years ago or something with the train shake it up song where Santa has like the snow globe and he's moving the snow globe and like bringing people together. That ad lives rent free in my fucking mind around the (laughs) holidays. Like I love that commercial so much and Santa's just like bringing people together and then at the end it's like do 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 you know the little Coca-Cola train Christmas it's just it's so cute and this Santa right here just looks happiness (laughs) wake up wake up happiness it's so cute and this Santa he just looks jolly as can be and I'm here for it (laughs) Santa looks jolly as fuck (laughs) Um, he's just so happy and job well done and he's relaxing with a coca-cola and you know what it reads perfectly well to me (laughs) yes yeah um I love the newer ones with the polar bears I think the polar bears are very cute are really cute um I think you know, when it Except comes... Coca-Cola is really going to have to figure that out, given their contributions to climate change. I mean, that's oh. not not a great look for Coca-Cola. <laughs> yeah, that's rough. Merry Christmas. <laughs> we are melting the ice caps. <laughs> Woohoo. Um, yeah, so that is my little history on Santa. I hope it wasn't too rushed. You wanted to dedicate um, a lot of time about 
um, last week's episode and following up with you guys about that. But we hope this puts you in a little bit of a festive mood. As we kind of talked about for our parade episode, I am like a staunch believer in giving Thanksgiving justice. So right after that, I put my little plandy bush Christmas tree up and I've got my, basically Thuban and I have all of our Christmas shopping done too. So I wrapped all my presents. They're under my tree. They look super cute and I am definitely in the mood. But before we get into some other things, Bianca, I want to ask you, do you have like a favorite Santa like in the movies? Like who's your favorite Santa? Tim Allen. Tim Allen as a Santa Claus. Is your Tim <laughs> Allen. Yeah. I, I love, I think Tim Allen is a fantastic Santa. I love Santa to be, you know, like a little funny, a little witty, a little sassy. A little sassy. Yeah. yeah. And there's something more that I love than Santa Claus being played by a former cocaine dealer. So. <laughs> God, I know, and the Republican. That's fine. I still like Tim Allen. I know. Party I know. I think, bullshit. I think he's a fantastic Santa Claus. I am very excited to watch that movie. <laughs> okay, I had to look him up because I don't know his name, uh, but Edmund Gwen. Gwen, yes, who plays Santa on Miracle on 34th Street. Aww. I think he's so cute, and I just like the way that he acts with Natalie Wood. I I love him, and I love so it. So sweet. He's introduced in the movie because the Santa for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade <laughs> is sloshed, and he's like, shame on you, sir. <laughs> That's so cute. I love that. I did. Um, that was actually the first one I watched this Christmas season. Oh, nice. Miracle on 34th Street. I've been saving nice. White Christmas for you, bitch. Have I you watched I it? Okay. No, I haven't watched it yet. I Good. haven't watched that. I haven't watched Santa Claus or Home Alone. Ooh, but I, I watched I, Home Alone. I, I, Oh, that's okay. I'll watch it with Andrew tonight, actually, because he's been wanting to watch Home Alone. So yeah. that's good that to know that you already watched it. Yeah, I watched Home Alone and gave in for that one. But White Christmas, okay. yeah. I haven't watched nice. that one yet. Well, thanks so much, Gianna. I, I, I'm feeling some joy after that. Feeling, feeling the Christmas spirit. And Gianna, I will see you in the flesh in a few days. Uh. So look out on our Instagram because we'll be posting the two of us IRL. So our little tartlets, before we let you go for the holiday season, we need your help planning our comeback in 2022. That's pretty wild. Gianna and I are finally doing the Drunk Art History episode that you all have been asking for. We will keep you posted on the details, how that episode will be released, the format, but you will have it on January 4th. So in the meantime, to make that happen, we need questions from you all. These questions can be anything about art history, about pop culture, they can be personal, whatever. We just want to hear from you guys. You can send an email with your question to artpoptalk at gmail.com, or you can also send in a voice recording to our email address as well with your question, and we will play it back for you on the episode. So with that, everyone, we hope that you have an amazing holiday, a very happy new year. We love you all so much, and we are so excited to kick off 2022 with you all in January. Gianna, anything else to add? Uh, nothing much other than I hope everybody has a great holiday. I hope everyone has a little break from work and everyone, please, please, please stay safe. Don't let the transformer that is Omicron get you. <laughs> Merry <right>. Christmas. <laughs> everyone, we will talk to you on January 
for happy holidays everyone bye bye art pop talks executive producers are me bianca martucci fink and me gianna martucci fink music and sounds are by josh turner and photography is by adrian turner and our graphic designer is sid hammond <laughs>